Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment and audiobooks, ranging from bestsellers to celebrity memoirs, news, business, and self-development. Every month, members get one credit to pick any title, plus two Audible originals from a monthly selection, and access to daily news digests from the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post, as well as guided meditation programs. Between a full-time job in IT and a full-time job in podcasting, it gets harder and harder to sit down and read the books I'm interested in. This is where Audible comes in. I can listen on my daily commute, relaxing, or while out running errands and still get in the books I've been wanting to get into. You can download titles and listen offline anytime, anywhere. The app is free and can be installed on all smartphones and tablets. Now you can try Audible risk-free with a special 30-day free trial by visiting audibletrial.com forward slash nerdery and murdery. That's audibletrial.com forward slash nerdery and murdery. Don't let your busy life get in the way of that great book you've been wanting to read. Go get your free trial of Audible today. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. This is Jeffrey, and we've talked about many times before that I experience problems and struggles with my mental health. And really, without a healthy mind, being truly happy and at peace is hard. The good news is therapy does work. It's helped for me. But but what is is therapy exactly? It's it's whatever you want it to be. Maybe you're not feeling motivated right now and would like some tools to help. Or maybe you're feeling insecure in relationships at work or you're not dealing well with stress. Whatever you need, it's really time to stop being ashamed of normal human struggles. And, and it's time to start feeling better because you deserve to be happy. And now you don't have to worry about finding an in-person therapist near you to help. BetterHelp is a customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. So join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about. It's always a good time to invest in yourself because you are your greatest asset. And there's a special offer to Nerdery and Murdery listeners. You can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com slash nerderyandmurdery. That's betterhelp.com forward slash nerderyandmurdery. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this podcast. All right. Welcome to the first live show for Nerdery and Murdery. As it is a live show... Please make sure to laugh, <laughs> clap, <laughs> boo, boo, or whatever you feel. <laughs> uh, we will have an opportunity for Q&A after the show. With that, I believe your hosts have been waiting or just making their way here. So on with the show. Thanks for coming. All right, you ready to go for the live show? Yeah, um, wh- where is it again? Uh, we turn left right up here. Dude, I got the map in front of me. It says we turn right. No, we turn left. I'm telling you, we turn left. No, dude, look, I got the, I got the map right okay, here. Okay, if we turn right, we're not going to get to where we're going, and everybody's just going to be sitting waiting. That might be funny. No, we turn left. I've been here like a thousand times. Are you sure? Yes. But the map! No, I'm telling you, look, turn left. Oh, there's the door.
Wow. Look at that. A live audience. Welcome to the first live show of Nerdery and Murdery. Nerdery and Murdery. Oh my God, I'm shaking. Don't be shaking. <laughs> By the way, I'm Zig with your Nerdery. And I'm Jeffrey with your Murdery. And again, welcome to the first yeah. very ever live show. And, and this is also the one year anniversary of one the show. One year. One honors. Episode 52. 52, kids. 52 episodes. Yep. You know, one one year ago today, we were sitting here wondering how we were going to be able to get out 36 episodes <laughs> for a year if we did like one a week. And at the time, we were like, yeah, we'll start releasing in September. Maybe it'll go to October. And then suddenly we had 10 episodes on we our belt. Like, oh my God, can. we need yeah. to release. So. Yeah. so we released on June 6th. June uh, 6th, yeah. K3's birthday. Yep. Yeah. Yay. Intern K3. So it's been it's been a fun fun journey. Yes, uh, you know. Thank you for taking this journey with me. It's been well. It's been a blast. Thank you for the idea. Oh, no, I think it's more. Uh, Will, look at this. We have Will in the house. In the house. Everyone can see his face. Being seen for the first time ever. That's awesome. That's awesome. So, so yeah, it's really. This this was really started from Will and and we kind of just really really spawned off from there on everything that that happened with the show and I mean in fifty two in fifty two weeks we've done fifty two obsessions yes uh, we've done almost fifty two murders not all of them have been murders well yeah but if you if you take the aggregate of some of them had multiple murders so I think we've done at least fifty two murders <laughs> you're an idiot. <laughs> Uh, we also did some guest hostery. As a matter of fact, one of them is in the house right yes, now. Trey Caden Ed! So if you have questions for MASH, he's sitting over there. Just Yeah, and there will be time for question and answers after the show. Hope people uh, have some that they want to ask. We're really looking forward to that. Uh, the Q&A portion of the show will be exclusive on our patron. Yes. Uh, whereas the rest of it will be live. So those of you in the house, you will be part of a, uh, a live broadcast. So yes. welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm super, super excited about being here. Me too. Well, Zig, I guess with that, you can take over on the nerdier side of the show. Well, awesome. Today, we're going to talk about college hijinks movies. Nice. <laughs> nice. So we're going to talk about National Lampoon's Animal House, PCU, yeah, and uh, and old school. So I have to say, with PCU, I think it's absolutely funny that so many people in the house are breaking the rule. They are wearing the concert T-shirt of the show the they're going to. They're at. <laughs> Don't be that guy. Don't be that guy. Don't be that guy. Don't be the guy. So I want to start by in mentioning uh, Drunk, Stone, Brilliant, and Dead, which is a documentary about National Lampoon's magazine and specifically Doug Kenny. Doug Kenny was kind of the, the creative uh, auspice of everything that happened at National Lampoon's. Uh, they also did a, a, a docudrama called uh, Stupid and Feudal Gesture, which is from Animal House. Uh, and so if you guys haven't seen that, you probably ought to get both of those. I think they're both on Netflix. I think yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Uh, Doug Kinney, for, for those of you who may not know, was the, the one of the conceivers of National Lampoon's Magazine. Uh, and in Animal House, he was Stork. 
So, yeah, if you ever see them live. So, National Lampoon's Animal House is a 1978 American comedy film directed by John Landis and written by Harold Ramis, Doug Kinney, and Chris Miller. It stars John Belushi, Peter Riegert, Tim Matheson, John Vernon, Vera Bloom, Tom Hulse, and Stephen First, and Donald Sutherland. Uh, the film is about a troublemaking fraternity whose members challenge the authority of the dean of the fictional Faber College. Uh, the film was produced by Maddie Simmons of National Lampoons and Ivan Reitman for Universal Pictures. Uh, it was inspired by stories written by Miller and published in the National Lampoon. The stories were based on Ramey's uh, experiences in the Zeta Beta Tau fraternity at Washington University in St. Louis, Miller's Alpha Delta Phi experiences at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire, and producer Reitman's experiences at, at McMaster's University in Hamilton, Ontario. Of the younger lead actors, only the 28-year-old Belushi was established, but even he had not yet appeared in a film, having gained fame as the original cast member of Saturday Night Live, uh, which was in its third season in the autumn of 1977. Why did it feel like there were more people from Saturday Night Live in that movie? Well, okay, so Saturday Night Live got a lot of those people from the uh, the live stage show for National Lampoons, the two live stage shows, and uh, the National Lampoons Radio Hour. So gotcha. all of those guys were part of National Lampoons before they were part of Saturday Night Live. Yeah, Brian Doyle Murray, Bill Murray, um, Harold Ramis, John Belushi, uh, Chevy Chase. American Yes, yes. They all started with, and they all thought Doug Kenny was the funniest guy in the room. That's awesome. Uh, filming took place in Oregon from October to December of 1977, uh, following its initial release on July 28th, 1978. Uh, Animal House received generally mixed reviews from critics, uh, but Time and Roger Ebert proclaimed it one of the year's best. Uh, it was filmed for only $3 million. Uh, it garnered an estimated gross of more than $141 million. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, making it the highest grossing comedy film of its time. Um, the film, along with 1977's The Kentucky Fried Movie, also directed by John Landis, was largely responsible for defining and launching the gross-out film genre. Yeah, there you go. See? Uh, it was largely uh, – in the United States Library – it was added to the United States Library of Cong Congress and deemed Animal House culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant in 2001. Uh, so it has been selected for preservation. Yes. Toga, 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 toga. <laughs> Did we stand down when the Germans invaded Pearl Harbor? What's he saying? I don't know. Just go with no, it. Just go, just go with it. <laughs> just go with it. Just go with it. So Animal House was the first film produced by National Lampoons, uh, a very popular humor magazine on college campuses in the mid-1970s. Uh, the periodical specialized in satirizing politics and popular culture. Many of the magazine's writers were recent college graduates, hence its appeal to students and all over the country. Doug Kenny was Lampoon writer and the magazine's first editor-in-chief. He graduated from Harvard in 1969 in um, a college experience closer to the Omegas in the film. Now, he and his writing partner wrote Board of the Rings before they did <laughs> National Lampoon. So if you've ever read Board of the Rings, that is also Doug Kenny. Yeah, it's really dirty. I need to put a link to that one. Yeah, I need to see that one. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> a big one. That's right. We're we're explicit anyway. So they based the character of Dean Warmer 
Dean Wormer. Vernon Wormer. Why is that so hard to say? Uh, was a PE and civics teacher as well as an athletic coach for them. So they based that on, on that guy. Um, Kenny felt that the fellow Lampoon writer Chris Miller uh, was the magazine's expert on this college experience. Uh, faced with an impending deadline, Miller submitted a chapter from his then-abandoned memoirs entitled The Night of the Seven Fires about pledging experience from his fraternity days in Alpha Delta. Uh, during Miller's undergraduate years, the fraternity subsequently disassociated itself from the national organization and is now called <laughs> Alpha Delta at Dartmouth College. The an- antics of fellow fraternities coupled with experiences like the road trip to the University of Wisconsin-Madison uh, and its Delta Chi fraternities uh, became the inspiration for the Delta Tau um, in, in Animal House. Uh, now, the screenplay. Uh, Kenny met uh, Lampoon writer Harold Ramis at the suggestion of Simmons. Ramis drew from his own fraternity experiences as a member of the Zeta Beta Tau fraternity at Washington University in St. Louis and was working on a film treatment about college called Freshman Year. Uh, but the magazine's editors were not happy with it. So uh, the famous scene of Bruce McGill as D-Day riding a motorcycle up the stairs, that was from that treatment. So they didn't keep it in. Some of Belushi's antics while a student at the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater were, were written down specifically for Bluto's stuff. So Belushi, the reason Belushi was able to play Bluto so well is because it was actually his own life. <laughs> yeah. Originally, the title was going to be Laser Orgy Girls, but they decided on Animal House instead, yeah. Uh, the film occurs on November 21st, 1963, the day before President Kennedy's assassination. So, yeah. They picked that time specifically for that poignant time in American history. Ramus, Miller, and Kennedy were all new to screenwriting, so the film treatment ran to 110 pages. Yeah, where most treatments are an average of 15. Uh, Reitman and Simons pitched it uh, to every Hollywood studio. Simons met with uh, Ned Tannen, an executive at Universal, and was encouraged by younger executive Sean Daniels and Tom Mount, who were more receptive to the Lampoon type of humor. Mount had discovered the Seven Fires film treatment at Tannen's assistant assistance uh, while investigating um, projects left left by a fired studio executive. Now, they remembered, they just figured, screw it. It's a silly little movie and we'll make a couple of bucks. We're lucky if they'll let, they'll, they're going to let us do whatever we want. So initially, Reitman had wanted to direct, but he made only one film, Cannibal Girls, for $5,000. <laughs> yeah, the film's producer approached Richard Lester and Bob Raffleson before considering John Landis, who got the director job solely based on uh, the Kentucky Fried movie because he'd just done that one. Uh, the film script was continually supervised. Uh, uh, the film script supervisor, I am so sorry, uh, was his girlfriend, uh, was the girlfriend of Sean Daniels and an assistant to Mount. Uh, the initial cast was to feature Chevy Chase's Otter, Bill Murray as Boone, Brian Doyle Murray as Hoover, Dan Aykroyd as D-Day, and John Belushi as Bluto, but only Belushi was interested. Um, Chase turned down the film uh, in order to do the movie Foul Play. Really? Yeah. yeah which is also a great movie. I like Foul seen Play. It. Yeah. Foul Play's great. Um, Landis wanted to cast a bunch of unknowns because he thought, um, particularly dramatic actors, because he figured they could play drama and funny but if they were coming at it from a dramatic point of view, it would actually be funnier. So he found some unknowns like Kevin Bacon, yeah, Karen Allen, 
and uh, they were discouraged by Ch- uh, Chevy Chase by describing the cast as an ensemble, which is why you know Chase wanted to do a starring role instead. Um, the choice for D-Day being Dan Aykroyd was basically because he was a motorcycle aficionado. But still they were is. yes, he still is. But they. Uh, Ramis originally wrote the role of Boone for himself, um, but Landis figured that he was too old to play it, so we got Peter Riegert instead, who, honestly, if you look at a picture of John Landis and Peter Riegert, yeah, I can see it. <laughs> Ultimately, John Vernon was cast as Wormer after Landis saw him in the outlaw Josie Wales. Belushi initially received $35,000 for Animal House, but was paid a bonus after the film became a hit. Uh, Landis also met with Meatloaf in case Belushi turned down the role. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You can see that, right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Landis uh, wanted to make Bluto kind of a cross between a Harpo Marx and the Cookie Monster. He wanted him. <laughs> so uh, the reason he liked Belushi is Belushi's grandmother, uh, I believe she was Latvian. She may have been Lithuanian. She didn't speak English, but he grew up around her. So he learned to express himself by using his face. That's why they wanted to use Belushi. Uh, Now, Donald Sutherland was one of the most popular film stars of the 1970s. And Donald Sutherland is the reason they were able to get the movie made. Um, He was the only big name associated with the, with the cast. He plays such a great character in this. Oh my God. And he, he's only there for filming for three days. Yeah. Oh, my God, yeah. Don Perry, everybody. (laughs) Now, they moved an old piano from the lobby into McGill's room. uh, That was D-Day, which became known as Party Central. James Widows, Hoover, remembers it was like freshman orientation with a lot of getting to know each other and calling each other by our character names. And they started a tactic. They, They left the Deltas in a room by themselves, and they left the the other fraternities in another room, in another section of the hotel. So they really wanted to kind of start an animosity between them. Now, the Lake Club um, around Eugene, Oregon, is where they uh, filmed the the Death Delay Club. They the, uh, the, the club that they all went to? Yes. Okay. Now, in that scene, they actually had a, a scene where John Landis was a, uh, was a dishwasher in that scene, and they they cut it out. Well, and in in this scene, along with others as well, is is one of those reasons that this movie couldn't be made today. Oh yeah, uh, you know, I mean, can we dance with your dates? Yeah, we were just leaving. Yeah, as funny as this movie is, it could not be made. You today. think so? No, no, not not the way it was written. Yeah, so that basically wraps it up for that portion of Animal House. Not, and, and I love Animal House. Animal, Animal House, House is I great. mean, it was it was a staple when I was a kid. I mean, oh I, yeah, I, I I was watching these type of movies pretty early, and they were silly and they were funny, and you know, for God's sakes, tuck in your pajamas. <laughs> that's right. That's right. right. Twisted Sister made a video about Animal House with Niedermeyer specifically. Right. Uniform, and and that's the thing. So many great lines come out of this. It, it's it's a great great hey, shout, yes. Shout, 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 shout. Um, it's 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 a great first dive into college movies. Oh yeah, I think so. I think it kind of set the tone. Yep. 
The next one is a little-known college movie from 1994 called PCU. It's an American comedy film written by Adam Leff and Zach Penn and directed by Hart Boucher about college life at the fictional Port Chester University, PCU, and represents an exaggerated view of contemporary college life. Contemporary for 1994. Where everything was PC. Yes, everybody was going really PC, so that was kind of a play on words. Uh, The film is based on the experience of Leff and Penn at uh, Eclectic Society at Wesleyan University in Middleton, Connecticut. Preppy pre-freshman or pre-frosh Tom Lawrence visits uh, Port Chester University, a college where fraternities have been outlawed and political correctness is rampant on campus. During his visit, accident-prone Tom manages to make enemies with nearly every group on (laughs) campus. And guess what? My notes just flipped pages. Sorry. Awesome. Meat Dozer! <laughs> not the first time this has happened. With no, it is not. And it just, it, yeah. Here we go. It just hates me. There we go. Uh, yeah, I should. I should call an IT guy, right? Oh, wait, that's me. Uh, so nearly every group of students gets mad at Tom, and thus he spends much of his time uh, evading these people chasing him around campus. During his visit, Tom also finds himself in the middle of a war between the pit and balls and shaft. Yeah, balls and shaft. Two rival groups among the members of the later is Rand McPherson, played by David Spade. So beautifully. Oh, he's perfect in this role, So too. beautifully. He's great. And he was, the, he was the leader of the balls and shaft. Uh, they want the outlawed Greek system to be returned. Meanwhile, the Pit, an unofficial group run by the former, run in the former Balls and Shaft frat house, is highly disorganized. Currently inhabited by seniors Gutter and Mulaney. Gutter played by a very, very young Jean Favreau. Yes. He lo- oh yeah, he looks like a ten-year-old in this movie. Gutter is a tool. Um. And mid-year freshman co-ed Katie, and led by multi-year senior James Draws Andrew, played by the great Jeremy Piven. Uh, the Pit is party-centered house and uh, rebels against the political correctness protest. The counter-protest and parties are a frequent source of complaint forms. Other factions on campus include a commune-style house of pot users called Jerrytown that Gutter often frequents. Uh, a, medical, a radical feminist group known as the Womenists, an Afrocentric group suspecting the pit of conspiring against them, and the college president, uh, Ms. Garcia, Garcia Thompson, who is obsessed with enforcing sensitivity awareness and multi, multiculturalism to the extreme. Um, she wants to change the college mascot to a whooping crane instead of the offensive Native American characters during their bicentennial anniversary. However, when she... Shows the whooping crane. It's actually a crowned crane. So it, that always bothered me. It's like that's not a whooping crane. That's a crowned crane. That is obviously a crowned crane. It has a crown. I am such a nerd. Thank you very much, Dodd Perry. Everyone, I'm gonna keep doing that. Yes, it is. Thank you, K3. Everyone. Yeah. Uh, she has a. Uh, a plan to get the pit kicked off campus and give grand control of the house. She provokes the pit residents uh, with a damage bill from the past semester. And left unpaid, the campus would seize their house, leaving them homeless and unable to continue attendance at PCU without getting jobs. 
The pit responds by throwing a party to raise the funds that they need. Yeah. The womenists take offense to the pit's flyers because the, the pit's flyers uh, promote a band. The name of the band is Everyone Gets Laid. <laughs> yeah. And they protest outside the house. Uh, residents uh, conspire to seal the alcohol and convince students to attend. The party at first appeals, appears to be a, f- a failure. However, a series of unlikely events results in another band playing. The band that plays is George Clinton and the Parliament Funkadelic. If you have not seen this movie, you need to see it for George Clinton and the Parliament Funkadelic playing a cover of Prince's Erotic City. They play the whole song on stage. It is amazing. The movie is is in it just for that scene. So what I'm hearing is Prince did a song based on... Yeah, yeah. So, 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 yes. Erotic City, since we're going to go down this rabbit hole, was Prince's attempt to do a George Clinton-style song. And then George Clinton covered it in a movie. Yeah, oh, it totally worked, yeah. We got full circle. So they have the party, and then they get a bunch of complaint forms, which gets them kicked out. Uh, At the bicentennial ceremony the following morning, Draws and the former Pitt residents succeed in liberating the whooping crane. It's a crown crane. (laughs) And provoking the other students into an impromptu protest against protesting. Because the, the line is, we're not going to protest. 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 We're not. That's the reason I wanted to do this episode is to get everybody in the room to do that. Thank you. Give yourselves a hand. Thank you very much. So Rand complains about all the other student groups, unaware that Draws as surreptitiously used the podium microphone to broadcast his rants, and everyone chases Rand McPherson or David Spade. Now, principal photography took place almost entirely in and around uh, Toronto, uh, with the University of Toronto serving as Port Chester University. Some limited second unit shots were shot on the Wesleyan campus uh, as well. Jeremy Piven complained in the DVD audio commentary that the actors were not allowed by the director to improvise at all. He was able to include some limited improvisations by appealing to the writers directly. Production schedules were changed when Piven, who is an active in anti-malaria charities, uh, contracted malaria (laughs) in a trip to Guatemala, which affected the filming, which is why he looks a little yellow in a few scenes. Uh, the film is notable for the Mud Honey's cover of Elvis Costello's Pump It Up, which plays at the very end, and they play the whole song. And this is this is the one I said, I'm not an Elvis Costello fan, but I love this song. Yeah, it's Mud that Honey. Song. Yeah. Yes. Uh, George Clinton and the Parliament Funkadelic also, again, cover Prince's Erotic City. P-Funk was not the first choice uh, of the band at the party. Originally, they wanted Nirvana. Wow. But when they were scripting wow. it... Uh, they were too expensive. Uh, the Goo Goo Dolls were also considered, but Hot, Hart Bachner thought that they wouldn't be recognized in America because they weren't well known enough uh, at the time. Because even though PCU was released in 99, 1994, it was filmed in 1992 and it sat on the shelf for all of 1993. 
Um, PCU was uh, filmed in and around Toronto. Uh, and the freshman dorms are actually the Ontario Provincial Legislature. So, that's kind of <laughs> Uh, Jerry, Jeremy Piven smokes cigarettes throughout the film, but since Jeremy Piven does not smoke, uh, his cigarettes were filled with ground up fruit instead of tobacco. Oh yeah, I know. I was okay. like, why not just smoke cigarettes? I mean, <laughs> that's gotta be gross. Can you imagine that? Yeah. Ground up apples. Ew. Um, now according to Hart Bark, uh, Bachner, uh, with the idea that they weren't allowed to improvise. He said uh, he was able to include other limited improvisations, such as the don't be that guy line. So how it goes down is Draws goes down to Gutter's room, and he's getting psyched out for this show. And he's like, oh, hey, hey, yeah, I see. And he stops him and goes, wait a minute. Isn't that the band you're going to go see? Never wear the T-shirt of the band you're going to see. Don't, don't be, be that guy. So PCU was made uh, by a graduate of Wesleyan University is based on that school. In the opening sequence, there's a shot of the main library and one of the residence halls. George Clinton and the P-Funk All-Stars who appeared in the film were paid $150,000 for three days of work on set. Wow. They nailed it on the first take. Wow. But they made them stay and do a bunch of other songs because they paid them $150,000. They want to get their money's worth. Besides, you've got to... Exactly. You got a you got a concert of George Clinton all to yourself. Let's do it. Um, and they were able to do the play playback every time. Uh, and he wanted to get his money's worth. Uh, the shirt that Deej wears in the movie, one of the musicians from the original band, everybody gets laid, uh, is a real music store in Rochester, New York, uh, House of Guitars. Ashley, nice shout out. If you guys want to sponsor us, <laughs> Ashley Judd read for the role of Samantha, uh, but they decided wow. to go with the other lady instead. Yeah, CBS affiliate WSFB, based in Hartford, Connecticut, can be seen on the TV during Pigman's research to prove that no matter what time it is, 24 hours a day, you can find a Michael Caine or Gene Hackman movie playing on television, <laughs> which is known as the McCain-Hackman theory. So, <laughs> I can stop watching TV! So, the role of James Draws Andrews came down to a few actors, including Adam Sandler. Uh, yeah, I don't no, see that. Yeah. No. He was just about to leave Saturday Night Live. Uh, but he decided to do Airheads instead, which is a great movie, alongside uh, Brendan Fraser and Steve Buscemi. Uh, director Hart Bachner's best friend, Michael Lehman, which uh, Bachner regretted not casting him. During the scene where Draws has a flashback at the field uh, where the roommate of Rand McPherson in their dorm room, uh, where Draws is all whacked out, Jeremy... Piven almost punctured a lung when he slammed off the piece of furniture. Yeah, right as he's going off on David Spade. Also a scene you should see. Okay, so that's two. You need to see the George Clinton scene, and then you need to see the, the scene where Draws is uh, dousing David Spade with liquor and yelling at him, Go to sleep! Go to sleep! Uh, for the role of Tom Lawrence, it came down to Stephen Zahn and Chris Young uh, for the casting. They they went with Stephen Young. I would have liked to have seen Stephen Zahn in that role because I think Tom was the weakest character, even though this, the show was 
basically about him. Right. For the role of Sam, uh, they, they went with Sarah Trigger instead of Ashley Judd because she had more of a, a down-home feeling. And they could see Sarah Trigger being uh, the bassist in a band and not so much Ashley Judd. I think it was just... Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Again, he wasn't a great character. Um, the film's music supervisor, Ralph Saul's idea, featured George Clinton and the Parliament Funkadelic All-Stars. Um they believe was basically the right idea that Nirvana wouldn't have worked and the Goo Goo Dolls wouldn't have worked. It needed to be, it needed to be a party band. And that is basically it for PCU. Well, I love the fact that PCU precedes the next one old school. Oh yeah. And you need to watch it in that order. Yeah. Because Jeremy Piven's in both. Yes. Jeremy Piven plays the bad guy in the next one. Yes. And he's so good in that role. Yeah, I like Jeremy Piven way better than I like um, Adam Sandler in that role. He just—I don't think he. Could oh pull gosh, it yes. Especially no, not absolutely. that period. No, maybe Jer- now. Jeremy Piven was perfect for this movie, oh, yeah. and and you know, you said little known, and it's really sad that it's little known because PCU is a great movie. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yes, Jeremy. He's, br- he's brilliant. Yeah. Oh yeah, he was great in Cupid. Nobody knows that show. But then they had somebody else play it later on. See, you should have your own show, Don Perry. I'm just saying. Yeah, Don Perry, everybody. He's got great ideas. Um, So Old School is a 2003 American comedy film directed and written by Todd Phillips. The film stars Luke Wilson, Vince Vaughn, and Will Ferrell as depressed men in their 30s who seek to relieve their college days by starting a fraternity. Yeah. Oh, you're blue. my boy, Blue. You're my boy. We did a show with that dude back in the back in the early '90s. He's a really cool guy. Um, the film was filmed in and around La Cresta, California. Uh, it was filmed from January seventh, two thousand and two, until March eighteenth. Uh, filming locations included the Palisades High School, UCLA, USC, and Harvard University. Really, they went all the way to Harvard to get some shots. That's weird. The film is considered a forerunner to the frat, prat, frat pack since three of the stars are core members of that group. Now, upon returning home early from a business trip, uh, attorney Mitch Martin, Luke Wilson, walks in on his girlfriend, Heidi, watching porn. <laughs> Initially relieved, it turns out she uh, she planned a three-way, learning she regularly partakes in them. He decides to break up with her, and after a few days, Mitch encounters his high school crush, Nicole, uh, at the wedding of his friend Frank and makes an awkward impression. Later, he moves into a house located near the campus of the fictional Harris University in upstate New York. Mitch's other friends, Bernard, throws a housewarming party at Mitch's house, dubbed Mitchapalooza. With Snoop Dogg. With Snoop Dogg. Yeah. Yes, it was. Uh, Frank gets drunk and is seen streaking by his brand new wife. Frank Um, the Tank. Frank the Tank. Frank the Tank. Frank. Come on, everybody. We're going to the club. We're going streaky. I'm sorry. I thought I lost where I was. <laughs> uh, it puts a strain on his new marriage. Circling back, as, as we do. Um, and they run into an old acquaintance who, th- who they used to ridicule at school. Dean Gordon Pritchard. Again, played by... Jeremy Piven. 
uh, who is now the college dean. He informs them that they must vacate the house because it's, it's exclusively for campus housing. Then Bernard proposes they start a fraternity and that it's open to anyone to meet in the house. The criteria is the new fraternity carries out several hazing events throughout the campus, attracting the attention of Pritchard and other faculty members. So they can start the fraternity as long as they have students in it. At a birthday party for one of Bernard's children, Nicole brings her boyfriend, Mark, and Mitch later walks in on him in the bathroom as he hooks up with another girl. Mark was played by the wonderful Craig Kilborn. He is so great in this movie because you hate him so much. Oh, he's awful, but he plays it so well. That guy does not get enough props. I love Craig Kilborn. Um... Mitch uh, later uh, is forced to recount the incidents to Nicole when Mark lies that the girl was was with Mitch instead of him. Later, the oldest fraternity member, Blue, dies of a heart attack during a KY Lube wrestling event uh, with two uh, college girls at his birthday party. I think he was turning 80. I think that was like that. He got so happy, though. Yes, he did. He did. And again, again... I want to point out Trey and his wife Amanda back there. We actually did a show with that dude back in the early 90s. It was really kind of awesome. Uh, now, he was not as old as he looked, by the way. Not nearly as old oh, as God, he looked. Oh, because he looked old. He, yeah, he's not he nearly ancient. as old. I can't even remember what, what show I don't remember. Give it up for Trey and Amanda, everybody. Yeah. Yeah, all right. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, my train of thought is in scale. Thank you. Instead of ducks in a row, you got squirrels in a rave. Yes, I have squirrels in a rave. Not ducks in a row, squirrels in a rave. So, plotting, circling back, as we do, plotting revenge against the group, Pritchard asked the student council president, Megan, to revoke the fraternity's charter. Megan, who met her boyfriend at one of their parties, initially remains loyal to the fraternity until the dean bribes her with promising to help her get into Columbia Law School. By video, he claims that the group is violating university policies, subject, subjecting the students in a non-sanctioned fraternity to expulsion. Mitch learns that the group has the right to bypass the Pritchard's ruling if all of the members complete various activities to prove their legitimacy. Frank is able to defeat James Carville in a debate session, which is the <laughs> weirdest scene you will ever see. Uh, next, the fraternity successfully navigates its way through the a- academic exam, largely due to the assistance of two of Mitch's co-workers who help everyone cheat in the school. Uh, in the school spirit evaluation, the fraternity loses points when Frank unsuccess- unsuccessfully attempts to jump through a ring of fire, fire while dressed as the school mascot and catches himself on fire, resulting in a couple of firefighters being summoned. Afterwards, Megan confronts Pritchard, telling him that, the, uh, that she sabotaged the civilian fraternity's charter, but she, was accepted at, she wasn't accepted into Columbia Law School. Pritchard uh, walks away, leaving Megan with nothing, but not before telling her, I bribe people all the time, but I changed my mind. It's a free country, okay? Lesson learned. God, he's so evil. Burned and humiliate. Uh, humiliated, Frank rallies to give a strong performance in the floor exercise routine of the gymnastics competition. Bernard manages to complete 
the rings routine while smoking a cigarette. Vince Vaughn doing an iron cross on the rings while smoking a cigarette is a great scene. Yes. Um, leaving only the vault exercise remaining. Pritchard uh, chooses Weensy, uh, an obese member of the fraternity, to perform the vault. Weensy executes a perfect landing, allowing the fraternity to pass the gymnastics routine. Will Ferrell doing the ribbon dance. Is beautiful. Oh, my God. It's, it's because amazing. he's so good at it. He's really good at it, and he has that face. It is like the yes, blades, blades of glory. Of lore, yes. Yeah, give it up for Nicole, everybody. Right. Uh, the fraternity competes all the activities with an eighty-four uh, percent average. However, Pritchard tells them that their average has dropped to a f- uh, failing fifty-eight percent after after accounting for the absence of Blue, who was deceased. While the students are in despair, Megan arrives with a tape recording uh, evidence of Pritchard's bribery. And after a chase throughout the camp- campus, Frank obtains the tape and uses it to get Pritchard fired. The fraternity's charter is reinstated and moves into Pritchard's former residence. Now, there is a mid-credits scene. Oh, I'm sorry. Nicole visits Mitch as he's moving out of the old fraternity house and tells him she dumped Mark after catching him cheating. The two reconcile, uh, intent on moving their relationship forward. Mitch and Bernard decide to withdraw from the fraternity. Frank, now divorced, takes over the leadership role. And he has a radio show, The Smooth Sounds of Frank the Tank. In a mid credit scene, Mark, who is driving his sports car, suffers an accident, striking and killing Dean Pritchard while he is fly fishing. They both die. Frank meets Heidi while shopping, who then invites him to a get-together, an invitation that he enthusiastically accepts, knowing about her sexual escapades. At the Mitch Palooza party, Snoop Dogg and Cocaine perform Papered Up. Sampling by Eric B. and Rakim's track, Paid in Full. Uh, the soundtrack also in, includes Fun Night by Andrew W.K., Dust in the Wind by Kansas, Hungry Like the Wolf, Farmer in the Dell, Gonna Make You Sweat, Louie Louie by Black Flag. Wow. Yeah, Louie Louie by Black Flag is awesome. So, uh, yeah. So, I know I may be the only hardcore punk fan in here. Oh, yeah. we got another one. Let's give it up. Yeah, uh, they're awesome. Um, Chariots of Fire, uh, Good Lovin' Gone Bad, Master of Puppets by Metallica. Yeah, there we go. Playground of the Mind by Clint Holmes, The Sound of Silence by Simon and Garfunkel, and the main title song of the movie is Here I Go Again by Whitesnake. Yeah. <laughs> we just played when Will Ferrell's character is fixing his car and at the closing credits. Also, the Dan Band sings... One of their famous songs by Bonnie Tyler, Total Eclipse of the Heart, with some interesting improvisational department, uh, departures in the cover's lyrics, and Styx's Lady. Uh, during the introductory sequence, Ryan Adams' uh, To Be Young is To Be Sad is To Be High, co-written by David Rawlings, can be heard most memorably during the metal scene, uh, the metal detector scene. So, the Dand Band peoples, if you guys haven't heard them, they basically cover 80 songs. Uh, with their own lyrics and if you guys if for nothing else watch the Will Ferrell da- uh, scene where he sets himself on fire because it's really funny the scene where he does the floor exercises and the Dan Band yep. scenes where yep. they're doing Lady and um, Total Eclipse of the Heart 
And that is about it for old school. Well, and that's and that's one of my favorites too. I mean, I love all three of these movies, but old school mm-hmm. I have watched time and time and time again, and it's funny every single time I watch it. You know, I I, I don't have there. There's no lull in it. There's no times where I'm like, oh, I've seen this. I can fast forward. That movie is just funny every single oh, yeah. time. I can't get enough. Of oh yeah. Old school. Todd Phillips is a genius. Yeah. Todd Phillips is in it Absolute too. Absolute genius. Do you know Todd Phillips is, is he in really? it? Yeah. What's you know name? when the guy knocks on the door and says. I'm here for the gangbang. That's Todd Phillips. Oh, that's right. That's right. Because he's in, he's in the elevator in the Hangover. Yeah. That's. Uh, oh. He looks. Yeah. He looks both ways and goes. Uh, I'm here for the gangbang. Yeah. 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 Oh, really? That's funny. No, no, no. Let's, let's give it up for Nicole, everybody. Yay. Well, good stuff. I appreciate uh, I appreciate you bringing all three of those again. Well, I, I thanks, absolutely sir. love those movies. So I guess then with that, we turn dark and go over to the murdery side of the house. Murder. So for today, I got my information off Murderpedia. Uh, all that's interesting, uh, YouTube, The Beauty Killer Queen, and Criminal Minds Wiki. And today I'm going to be talking about Christopher Wilder. Christopher Wilder. So Christopher Bernard Wilder, uh, also known as the Beauty Queen, was an Australian serial killer who abducted and raped at least 12 women, killing at least eight of them during a six-week cross-country crime spree across the United States in early 1984. Uh, Wilder's series of murders began in Florida on February 26, 1984, and continued across the country through Texas, Oklahoma, Colorado, Nevada, California, and attempted abductions in Washington and New York. Uh, Wilder is also believed to have raped two girls aged 10 and 12 in Florida in 1983. And since his death, he's also been considered a suspect in many unsolved murders, including the unsolved 1965 murder of two teenage girls uh, in his Sydney, uh, in Sydney, Australia, where he lived during the same period. So Christopher Wilder was born on March 13, 1945 in Sydney, Australia. He was the son of an American naval officer and an Australian national. Uh, he nearly died at birth. He almost drowned in a swimming pool at the age of two. Uh, and apparently was so close to death after his birth that a priest performed last rites. So possibly, uh, I can't remember the word for it. Yes, brain damage from lack of oxygen. Thank you, Could Don. be. Could be. Um, he also began uh, becoming a voyeur and peeking through windows at a very, very early age. On January 4th, 1963, he raped a 13-year-old girl in the company with two other young men, both of whom denied involvement in the assault. And Wilder was sentenced to probation and counseling and, later, and claimed later in life he also re- received electroshock therapy in order to try to get these violent tendencies out of him. It has been suggested that this therapy aggravated Wilder's violent sexual tendencies. However, journalist Duncan McNabb claims there's no evidence that he underwent electroshock therapy and that the story of Wilder's near drowning was just an invention of his own mind. Oh, okay. Uh, Wilder did marry in 1968. His his wife left him after one week. His wife complained of sexual abuse and left him after finding panties that were not hers and photographs of naked women in a briefcase Wilder left in his car. The photo at this point, just the photos, just the photos. Good question. Nice. 
In November of 1969, he used nude photographs to extort sex from an Australian student nurse. She filed a police report, but charges were eventually dropped when she refused to testify in court. He then emigrated to the United States in 1969 and lived in Boynton Beach, Florida, in an upscale home. He was very successful in real estate and developed an interest in photography. He was the model of a swinging bachelor and soon amassed a small fortune in the construction business. He was very handsome and well-tailored. Uh, he acquired six parcels of Palm Beach County real estate worth nearly $400,000. And he vacationed in Vail, dabbled in photography and raced cars, and even once finished 17th in the Miami Grand Prix. That's why he's going to Colorado. Oh, okay. He had a I'm with you. He had a jacuzzi that bubbled outside of his bedroom and a speedboat moored to his own private dock and was known to have some very wild parties. He also had a penchant for attractive young women. He said in an interview for a dating service in 1981, I want to date and enjoy the company of women, women with depth. I'm looking for a long-term relationship, but not marriage. From about 1971 through 75, he faced various charges related to sexual misconduct. In March of 71, he was picked up on a charge of soliciting women to pose for nude photos. He entered a plea of not guilty to disturbing the peace and escaped with only a small fine. Boy, if they would have kept this guy a little sooner. Yeah, yeah. Maybe hold on to him for just a little while longer. Well, in October of 1977, he coerced a female high school student into oral sex, threatening to beat her if she refused. He told the judge he was masturbating twice a week to the mental image of raping a girl and did not think what he did to the student was wrong. He oh, was my jailed. God. Well, he was jailed, and he admitted to the crime to a therapist, but since those are confidential and inadmissible in court, he was set free. He eventually raped a young woman in 1979 he had lured into his truck on the pretense of photographing photographing her for a modeling contract, and this would become the modus operandi for his later crime spree. The woman told Wilder that she had venereal disease and the hope the lie would protect her, but he raped her anyway. He pled guilty to charges of attempted sexual battery and was given five years probation and further therapy ordered by the court. Why? Oh, tell me so he went back to Australia in 82, and he was charged with sexual offenses against two 15-year-old girls who he had forced, forced to pose nude. His parents posted a $350,000 bail, which he was allowed to turn to Florida and await trial, but court delays prevented his case from ever being heard as the initial hearing date of April 1984 would come after his death. In early 1984, he began a bloody six-week cross-country crime spree in the United States. He left in his wake eight female murder victims. The first murder attributed to Wilder was that of Rosario Gonzalez, who was last seen on February 26, 1984, at the Miami Grand Prix, where she was employed as a spokesmodel. Wilder was also at the race, where he raced in an IMSA GTU class in a Porsche 911. And according to witnesses, Rosario was last seen at noon, leaving with an older man she la- that was later identified as Chris Wilder. She lived with her parents in Homestead, Florida, about 23 miles from Miami, but never returned home. And her parents said she always called home if she was going to be late. Her vehicle was later found parked at a DuPont Plaza hotel in downtown Miami, and her paycheck was never picked up. On March 5th, Wilder's former girlfriend, Miss Florida finalist Elizabeth Kenyon, went missing, and neither her or uh, Rosario were ever found. Uh, Kenyon's parents remembered her speaking of Wilder as a real gentleman, <laughs> unlike uh, the various other photographers who who was asked if she would pose, uh, who would asked her if she would pose in the nude. 
She dated Wilder for a time and he and was proposed to by him, but she declined due to their age differences. What part of Florida is this? Uh, this this part is in uh, Miami, South Florida. Okay, so easily to, easy enough to get to either crab beds or alligator farms. Right. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, crabs and gators. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Palm Beach and and in the Miami area. Okay. Uh, she's believed to last uh, to have last been seen with them at a gas station in Miami. Two attendants there said Elizabeth had been there on Monday afternoon and was about to pay for her gas when a man in a gray Cadillac drove in behind her and paid the bill. Uh, they said she seemed to know him, and they mentioned they were on their way to the airport, but this would be the last time anyone saw Elizabeth. When the attendants were shown photographs of Chris Wilder, he was easily picked out as the man with her. Her car would be found six days later, abandoned at the Miami International Airport, uh, but neither Elizabeth or Chris's name showed up on any flights. Police wanted to question Wilder, but he was nowhere to be found. Uh, he missed his scheduled therapy appointment on March 17th, and he went and met with his business partner and told him he was being framed and told him, quote, I'm not going to jail. I'm not going to do it. He then packed his car, withdrew a substantial amount of money from the bank, dropped his dogs off at the kennel, and drove out of town heading north. On March 18th, Wilder led uh, 21-year-old Teresa Waite Ferguson away from the Merritt Square Mall in Merritt Island, Florida, and murdered her, dumping her body in a snake-infested swamp at Canaveral Groves, where it was discovered on March 23rd. She was last seen at several stores in a mall, and an an hour after she was last seen, Wilder called for a tow truck to pull his car out of sand near Canaveral Groves. It was known as a lover's lane, and he was alone, so he claimed that he was lost. Teresa would be the first confirmed murder for Chris Wilder. Wilder's next victim was 19-year-old Linda Grover from Florida State University, whom he abducted from the Governor's Square Mall in Tallahassee, Florida, and transported to Bainbridge, Georgia, Georgia on March 20th. Wilder offered Linda $25 an hour to pose for photographs, and at his car, Wilder showed her fashion magazines claiming the photographs were his work and promising her a career. She declined his offer to photograph her for a modeling agency, after which he assaulted her in the parking lot by punching her in the stomach and hitting her in the face, then pushed her into his car. Um, Wilder tied Grover's hands, wrapped her in a blanket, put her in the trunk of his car, and then took her to the Glen Oaks Motel, where she was raped repeatedly. This part killed me. At the hotel, he blinded her by putting super glue on her eyes and then put, put a blow dryer over her eyes to harden the glue. Oh, my God. And then he applied copper wires to her feet to, uh, to pass an electric current through them. Oh. Uh, she tried to get away, and he beat her, but she escaped and locked herself in the bathroom where she began pounding on walls. So Wilder fled, uh, fled in his car and took all of her belongings with him. This was the first proven incident of interstate kidnapping associated with Wilder, so the FBI was now able to get involved. Yeah, because it crossed state lines. Yep, and he got added to the FBI's most wanted list in April. On March 21st, Wilder approached Terry Walden, a 23-year-old wife, mother, and nursing student at Lamar University in Beaumont, Texas, about posing as a model. She turned him down but ran across him two days later on March 23rd, and he kidnapped her then. He bound her and stabbed her to death and dumped her fully clothed body in a canal where she was found on March 26th, 70 miles from where Teresa Ferguson was found. Uh, After killing Walden, Wilder fled in her rust-colored 1981 Mercury Cougar, so he's now got a different car. 
Forty detectives were on the case by this point, and police knew the car, but assumed he had switched plates and assumed he had switched them with his own vehicle. So they knew the car, they knew the license plate number, but by this time he was long gone. And every step of the way, they're, they're just right behind him. Just behind him. And this is what killed me throughout this whole story is the police are, are sometimes they're just, they were, they were minutes or even just hours behind him. On March 25th, Wilder abducted 21-year-old Suzanne Logan at the Penn Square Mall in Oklahoma City. He then took her 180 miles north to Newton, Kansas, and checked into room 30 of the I-35N. After breakfast the next morning, he drove to Milford Reservoir, which was 90 miles northeast of Newton, near Junction City, Kansas, where he raped and stabbed her to death and then dumped her body under a cedar tree. Most of her clothes had been removed and her face was badly bruised, and she had been dead less than an hour when she had been found, but she she wasn't identified for over a week. Shortly after this, Wilder took 18-year-old Sherry Bonaventura, Bonaventura captive in Grand Junction, Colorado on March 29th, uh, Wilder had been at Grand Junction Mall soliciting women for photographs and modeling jobs. They were seen together at a diner in Silverton where they told the staff they were heading for Las Vegas with a stop in Durango along the way. On March 30th, they were seen at the Four Corners Monument, after which Wilder checked into the Page Boy Motel in Page, Arizona. He then shot and stabbed Bonaventura to death around March 31st near the Kanab River in Utah, but her body would not be found until May 3rd. Wilder killed 17-year-old Michelle Korfman, an aspiring model who disappeared from a 17-magazine cover model competition at the Meadows, Law, uh, Meadows Mall in Las Vegas on April 1st, and there's a photograph that was taken of Wilder stalking her at the competition, along with other teenage girls parading around in their miniskirts. Witnesses saw them leave together, and other people recall Wilder approaching a number of women about modeling. Her body remained undiscovered near a Southern California roadside rest stop until May 11th and was not identified until mid-June because of dental x-rays. On April 4th, near Torrance, California, Wilder photographed 16-year-old Tina Marie Risico before abducting her and driving her to El Centro, where he assaulted her. Tina had agreed to pose for Wilder for $100 uh, for a billboard model shoot. And after shooting one roll of film, she told Wilder she needed to go home, which angered him. So he pulled out a gun, placed it in her mouth before binding her and throwing her into Terry Walden's cougar. He already had a motel room in El Centro where he tied her to the bed before attacking her. But Wilder apparently believed that Risico would be of use to, he- uh, use to him in helping get other victims. So he kept her alive and took him with her, took her with him as he traveled to eat back east through Prescott, Arizona, Joplin, Mississippi, and then to Chicago, Illinois. Uh, again, Wilder had been on the FBI's top 10 most wanted list since the second week of April, and FBI spokesman Chris Mazzella said, quote, We consider this to be the top fugitive investigation at this time. Unlimited resources are being poured into it. This is a truly massive manhunt stretching from coast to coast. Again, several times FBI arrived at a motel or restaurant within minutes or hours of Wilder's departure. He kept stealing license plates and driving in erratic directions, and he was exceedingly difficult for the FBI to predict. He was very compulsive about killing. It was a sexual addiction. He was a charming white male in his 30s, spurred by sexual fantasies and excited by beautiful young women who could be models, at which point he was dubbed the beauty queen killer. He was highly mobile. He was willing to drive long distances to keep doing what he was doing, and authorities monitored the credit cards Wilder had stolen from his partner, but it was difficult to determine where he was going. They could tell where he'd been, but not necessarily what direction he was going. Yep. 
So now they began putting him in newspaper articles, and Wilder began seeing the newspaper articles wherever his went, and his dating service videotape was broadcast on television, so now millions of people would know Wilder on sight, but this still didn't stop him. Risico and he went to Merrillville, Indiana, and on April 10th, he, uh, she helped him abduct 16-year-old Donette Wilt at the South Lake Mall. Wilder raped Wilt several times as Risico drove the car to New York. Near Penyan, New York, Wilder took Wilton to the woods and attempted to suffocate her before stabbing her twice and leaving her for dead. Wilt played dead until she knew Wilder was gone. Can you imagine? She tied a pair of jeans around herself, made it to the road, and was taken to Soldiers and Sailors Hospital in Penyan by a truck driver, Charlie Larson. Way to go, Charlie Larson. Absolutely. Uh, Dr. John F. Flynn performed a life-saving surgery on Wilt at the hospital, and Wilt survived and recuperated, and she told local police that Wilder was heading for Canada in a Mercury Cougar. At the Eastview Mall in Victor, New York, Wilder forced 33-year-old Beth Dodge into his car and had Risco follow him in the Dodge uh, Pontiac Firebird. This is one. Th- this is a part that I didn't understand. At this point, he doesn't have Risco in the car with him. She's following him in another car. Why did she stay? Why? Yeah. Why? Well, yeah. Why, did, why didn't she just turn off and yeah, head to I, the police? Yeah. I, I couldn't understand this at this point. Stockholm. Could be Stockholm. Stockholm. Could be. Maybe. Yeah. Could be. After a short drive, though, Wilder shot Dodge and dumped her body in a remote gravel pit. And then Risco and he then drove the Firebird to Logan Airport in Boston, where he bought her a ticket to L.A., gave her $100 for a taxi, and saw her off at the gate. Huh. Then Wilder headed north and in Beverly, Massachusetts. He attempted to abduct a woman at gunpoint, but was unsuccessful. So, along with the eight known victims between February and April 1984, Wilder has been suspected in the murders and disappearances of many other women, including some whose remains were found around Florida in the areas he was known to frequent. Wilder is the primary suspect in the disappearance of 15-year-old Colleen Orsborn, who went missing after leaving her Daytona Beach home on March 15, 1984. Uh, Colleen missed her school bus, so her mother gave her money for the public bus and then left for work, but Colleen never made it to school. Wilder was staying at a motel in Daytona Beach at the same time, and although he checked out on the day that Osborne disappeared, there's been no evidence to, f- to fully con- uh, connect them. Her body was discovered a few weeks later, partially buried near a lake in Orange County, Florida, and although it was initially ruled uh, not to be her, she was not formally identified until 2011, oh. utilizing advancements in DNA technology. Right on. Wilder is a suspect in Australia's unsolved Wanda Beach murders, the murders of Marianne Schmidt and Christine Sherrock at Wanda Beach near Sydney on January 11, 1965, most likely, mostly because of a similarity to a suspect sketch. He's the suspect in the unsolved disappearance of Mary Opitz. The 17-year-old disappeared in Fort Myers, Florida on January 16, 1981 and was last seen walking towards a parking lot. Another girl who physically resembled uh, Opitz, Mary Hare, disappeared on February 11, 1981 from the same parking lot. Hare's body, which had been decomposed, was found in June of 1981, and she had been stabbed in the back and was victim of a homicide. And authorities began to suspect foul play was involved in Opitz's case following this, but as of December 2020, her case remains unsolved. In 1979, the body of of an unidentified woman was found in a field in Caledonia, New York. She was the victim of homicide, had been shot twice, once in the head and once in her back. 
Despite the fact that she was found rather quickly, she remained a Jane Doe until 2015 when she was identified as 16-year-old Tammy Alexander who disappeared from Brookville, Florida earlier in 1979. What could link Alexander to Wilder is the fact that she was found wearing an auto sports jacket when her body was discovered. Wilder was a photographer and race car driver, and drivers were known to purchase auto sports jack- uh, products. Alexander was also shot and killed by a 38 caliber bullet, which was recovered in the dirt under her body. And this caliber is commonly used in 357 caliber revolvers, like the one Wilder attempted to use later on police. There's no evidence that ballistic testing was ever done, though, to match the round of the pistol. I was just about to ask that, did they do ballistics? It's inaccurate. It's terrible. In 1982, the skeletal remains of two unidentified women were unearthed near property owned by Wilder in Loxahatchee, Florida. One victim had been dead one to three years and apparently had her fingers cut off. She would be later identified as Tina Marie Beebe in 2013. The other woman had been dead for a period of months and to this day remains unidentified. Sherry Lynn Ball, a 20-year-old aspiring model, went missing on June 27, 1983 from Boca Raton, Florida. Her badly decomposed body was found by a hunter in Shelby, New York, on October 29, 1983, but she would not be identified until 2014. Her cause of death could not be determined, uh, but foul play was suspected, and Wilder is currently being looked at for possible involvement in the crime since it matches his M.O., but no evidence links him to the crime. She was found 38 miles from where Tammy Alexander was found in Caledonia, New York. Nancy K. Brown, a 25-year-old native of Rantoul, Illinois, disappeared while vacationing in Cocoa Beach, Florida on June 6, 1983. Her remains were discovered in Canaveral Groves in March 1984, where Wilder definitely hit another victim, and she was definitely the victim of a, of a homicide. Tammy Lynn Leppard, 18, was last seen around 11.30 a.m. on July 6, 1983 in Cocoa Beach, Florida, while in a heated argument with a male companion. Uh, Leppard's family filed a $1 million lawsuit against Wilder before his death, but dropped the suit afterwards. Leppard's mother, modeling agent Linda Curtis, later stated she never believed Wilder was involved in Tammy's disappearance. Police were never able to link Wilder and Leppert, but it may be a coincidence that she disappeared at the same time as he was targeting area models. He had a long history of sex crimes, but didn't begin killing his killing spree until almost a year after she vanished. Uh, an unidentified woman, the Broward County Jane Doe, was found floating in a canal on February 18, 1984 in Davie, Florida. She had been strangled to death and thought to have been dead at least two days before prior to, uh, before being found. So on Friday, April 13th, Wilder stopped at Vic Getty's service station in Colebrook, New Hampshire, to ask for directions to Canada. There were two New Hampshire state troopers there who recognized him, uh, Leo Jellison and Wayne Fortier. They approached Wilder, who then retreated to his car to grab uh, his 357 Magnum. Jellison was able to grab Wilder from behind, and in the scuffle, two shots were fired. The first bullet hit Wilder and exited through his back and into Jellison, lodging to his liver. The second bullet hit Wilder in the chest, killing him instantly. Uh, Jellison was seriously wounded, but recovered and returned to full duty. There was a copy of the novel The Collector by John Fowles, in which a man keeps a woman in his cellar against her will until she dies, and this was found among his possessions after his death. Spoiler alert, this comes up in a future episode. The Collector? Uh, other items found were the three fifty seven revolver, extra ammunition, handcuffs, a roll of duct tape, a sleeping bag, his business partner's credit card, and the specially designed electrical cord he used for stunning women he picked up. 
It had been 47 days since the first reported disappearance, and Wilder had spent 26 days on the run. Wow. In a weird final twist, following an autopsy of Wilder in 1984, Dr. Robert Christie, the pathologist in charge of Wilder's case, received a phone call from a man claiming to represent Harvard University. He said Wilder's brain was wanted for study to determine whether defect or disease had sparked Wilder's killing spree, and Dr. Christie agreed to deliver the brain on receipt of a written request from Harvard, but two weeks later he was still waiting, so he called the medical school and they said, no, nobody here made such a request. Okay, that's weird. For study? For study? <laughs> the last thing was Wilder was cremated in Florida. He left his personal estate more He's going to label it Abby Normal. <laughs> uh, Wilder did leave a personal estate worth more than uh, $7 million behind, and in June of 1986, a court-appointed arbitrator ruled that the after-tax balance was be divided amongst the families and the victims, and many of his victims still remain unfound today. And that is the story of Chris Wilder. Well, thank you, sir. It is. It is. It's messed up, and these are the things that I study. <laughs> yeah, he's... Yeah, and I would have loved to see that because with so many serial killers, we have things we see that are very much in common. You'll see tra- trauma in their life from brain injury or from abuse. You see animal torture. You see setting fire. You see bedwetting after the age of eight, um, humiliation in the home. But there really didn't seem to be anything with him. Yeah, other this. than the, the the story of the you know, possibly not getting enough oxygen to their brain. To and, his brain. And, and that could have been, that could have been the trauma that did it yeah. because something turned this yeah, key but, inside but his head. But nothing else hit, hit on the McDonald triad. The McDonald triad is the humiliation, the abuse. And- the McDonald triad, which is it. Some studies say it's a good theory. Others debunk it, but the McDonald triad is you will see the same two to three things in all serial killers. You will see that there have that that, that there's abuse. Uh, you will see animal torture, and the reason for the animal torture is because that is that person overpowering another creature because they are being overpowered. Now they've got to get that power back. Setting fires is the same thing because setting fires is giving is getting power back. Torturing of animals is the exact same thing. The bedwetting that they generally see past the age of eight comes to humiliation uh, because they will find that they will get humiliated for continuing to wet the bed after that date, um, further causing this need to gain power back. And so this is called the McDonald triad, and you see this very, very frequently in serial killers. So with the, with the animal thing specifically, I don't know, of course, I'm not a psychologist or anything like that, so is it getting power back or simply taking power away? Because like setting a fire, that doesn't give you any power, but it takes power away from other people. It, it not only takes power away, but but they're taking power they're from something. Back. The animal abuse, they're taking power that? from that animal right. because so they can overcome that creature. So I wonder if there's a distinction between power... Say it into the microphone, dude. There's a microphone over there. Uh, so I'm just wondering if there's a distinction between like gaining power 
and or just taking power away from it. And I'd have to look I'd have to look into that a little bit more. I the all all the research I've done on it so far is just gaining power back. It's gaining power. And I'm willing to bet that all those properties he owned in Florida, if, if they were able to scour those properties, they'd probably find them out. Probably. I don't disagree with you on that. Excellent question. Thank you, sir. Or how many times he's been like arrested and kind of still Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. Like he kept getting probation. He kept getting probation, everything like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I also feel like the fact that he had this many estates and apparently a large source of money probably really helped with the fact that he could get away with it by getting his performance. Yeah. Yeah. Running takes money. Right. I mean, come on, he had right. to be a good real estate agent. And an Aussie accent. Yeah. And an Aussie accent. An Aussie accent. Well, well, before we devolve into the question and answer... Yeah, that, I think we're already does, getting there, dude. That does uh, that takes us to the end of our of our live show for everybody here. We appreciate everybody that was here. It was a, it was a great time. Thank I you had, much. I, I had a wonderful time with this. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. To those of you that are listening out there and those of you in the room, uh, you can find more information about us if by going to nerderymurdery.com. Uh, there you can find the links to our social media as well as our email. So if there's things that you want to hear, we have a listener in the house who did get an episode of his own. Uh, so Yes, we w- Greg Lovato. You can thank him for we, Battlestar Galactica. We will... We will cover things uh, people want to hear. Uh, if there's things you don't want to hear, please let us know. Not necessarily that we're going to do it, but we'll at least listen to yeah, it. Yeah, I'm we'll not doing it. the math episode. I don't care who that guy is. I'm not doing an episode on math. You can also find the links to everything we talked about today as well as pictures on our website. Uh, you can find our merchandise on our website. So if there's uh, Nerdery and Murdery merchandise you want to get so you can show off your fandom, like we have people in the house that are showing theirs, please do check us out there. Uh, we also have the link to our patrons, so if you wish to donate to help keep our show going, please do consider that. Um, please and thank you. Please and thank you. But one thing you can do for free uh, is please go to iTunes and give us a rating where you can. Um, it, it really, really helps us get our content out there. Uh, helps people find us that might not know about us before. So please, please go out there and give us a five-star review. So with that... I have been Zig with your nerdery. And I'm Jeffrey with your murdery. Cue the music.